Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be here today. Last time we visited you, you, we attended a service. It was in a gym somewhere, and so we were very excited to learn about the, this new building and to be able to visit and see it with uh, my own eyes. Last time we visited was probably in 2011, and um, we gave you a short report back then about how the church plant was going. And uh, back in 2011, we were just coming out of a very, very difficult season of ministry. We'd spent five or six years. It seemed like we were really going through a, a wilderness. We didn't see any fruit, anyone, anyone come to know the Lord. And then in 2010, so right before our, our, our last visit, we did see a couple of people come to know the Lord, which was very exciting. And I, I suspect the last time we came, we were pretty excited to give you a good report. Well, I'm happy to announce that this uh, excitement has continued. These last f- four or five years have just been really, really encouraging. Um, five years ago, the congregation in Lyon was made up of about 15 people. Uh, that was in the wake of that one of the numerous setbacks we've experienced in ministry. And now it's up to over 40 pe- people on a Sunday, which doesn't, may not seem like a lot of people to you by American sta- standards, certainly. But to us, I mean, to us, it's really encouraging. Forty people every Sunday, it's the best we've had in a very, very long time. We have seen several other people come to know the Lord over the last four or five years. And again, that's something we hadn't seen for five or six years before that. And we can't really explain it because we haven't changed much in what we've been doing in terms of ministry. The only explanation we have is that it's God's sovereign will. He acts whenever he, it pleases him to act, to intervene, and he does so through his spirit to call his elect to himself, to call his, his sheep to himself. And we've seen God just use the ordinary means of grace that he's entrusted his church with, namely the preaching and teaching of his word, prayer, the fellowship of believers, and the sacraments. And that's basically what we've been doing for 15 or so years, except that these last five years, we've really seen wonderful fruit come from that. Again, France is a very, very difficult context to be ministering in. Uh, France can be best described as a, as a country of contrast between God's common grace, that is the grace that God extends even to non-believers, the grace that means that even non-believers can cook wonderful food like they do in France, the grace that means that even in France where you don't have many Christians, you still have wonderful scenery, uh, wonderful art, beautiful architecture, history, culture, and so on, and then a contrast between God's common grace and God's special grace, which is the grace that God extends to his children, to to those who have faith in him, who trust him for their salvation. And in France you have less than 1% of people who are Bible-believing evangelical Christians. In fact, our church is the only Bible-believing Presbyterian church, so the equivalent of a PCA, South Baton Rouge Presbyterian church, the equivalent in France for an area that covers 8 million people. An area of, of a radius of 100 miles. And so there you have it. We have a congregation of about 40 people, um, Bible-believing Presbyterians ministering or witnessing to 8 million uh, people. That's just to give you an idea of how difficult the, the context is, how, how dry the soil is for church planting. I'd, I'd love to go more into all of that, give you more details, tell you the stories about 
how several people have come to know the Lord, several atheists, young French atheists, how they've converted, converted to Jesus. But I don't really have time right now. Uh, but after the service, we'll be hanging around. Uh, we'll be happy to talk to you if you want to come up to us and we'll answer questions and so on. And we also, uh, we're in the States right now for a, a long period of time, nine months total, in the hope of raising uh, support, the support that we're still lacking for our ministry. And so we've been traveling all over the States. And if you'd like to subscribe to receive our monthly uh, email newsletters, we have a notebook where you can just add your uh, email address and we'll be happy to add you onto the list. And we have a bunch of prayer cards as well. If you'd like one, don't hesitate to ask and we'll give you one or several if you'd if you like several. So thank you. I look forward to talking to, to many of you after the service. I have to apologize in advance if I can't uh, finish uh, preaching my sermon, if I lose my voice before the end of it. Uh, I, a few days ago, I had no voice, and it's been coming back slowly, but I tend to cough a little bit, so I'm, I apologize in advance, especially if I cough in the microphone. I know that's not very uh, pleasant for you. <clears throat> we'll be reading uh, scripture this morning. We'll be reading from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 3, but before we get to that, I'd like to point, point out something. In life, you meet all kinds of different people, but you don't relate to these different people in the same way. You don't greet them in the same way. You don't act with them in the same way, do you? For example, when I, met, uh, when I meet my wife, Suzanne, after being gone for a week at a conference or something like that, when I meet her after that week of being gone, I don't act with her in the same way as when I meet the mayor of my town at an official dinner, for example. Or the day I met Scott Lindsay, your pastor, for the first time. It was probably not with the same state of mind as the time I talked to a convicted murderer in a prison I once visited. See what I mean? The truth is, it's what people mean to us that determines the way we greet them and the way we act with them, the way we relate to them. It's what they mean to us that determines that. So how should we relate to Jesus? How should we greet Jesus? How should we welcome Jesus as he reveals himself to us? How should we act with Jesus? Of course, it depends on what he means to us, right? And that's precisely the issue that the author of this passage we're about to read has in mind. There's a study that was conducted in France a few years ago where people were asked this question. Whether Jesus Christ actually existed or not, and you need to understand that in France, seven people out of ten are not convinced that Jesus actually existed as a historical figure. So whether he existed or not, um, what would you say... He stands for. What would you say Jesus Christ stands for? And the answers were 10% said a dissenter, 12% an example of love, 17% a prophet, another 17% a wise man, 20% a guide, 27% the son of God, and 30% a man just like any other. 10% said none of the above or did not wish to answer. Now that's a lot of different opinions, right? What would you have said? 
Of course, I suspect that most of you are good, well-behaved Christians, and so you would probably have answered the Son of God. Of course, Jesus is the Son of God. But then what does the Son of God mean to you? What does that stand for in your eyes? Is, is, is Jesus, the Son of God, a sort of genie who occasionally comes out of an oil lamp to fulfill your wishes? Is he a sort of personal coach who motivates you to eat well and to do good? Is he an ancient philosopher whose teachings are somewhat esoteric and mysterious? Is he a super nice, super generous, super loving superstar who's preparing a super party for after the end of the world? Is he a, a laid-back, pacifist, vegetarian hippie who gives advice for a stress-free life? What is Jesus? What does he stand for? What does he mean to you? Well, insofar as it's what people mean to us that determines the way we relate to them or the way we greet them or act with them, well, listen carefully. Matthew, who's the author of this passage we're about to read, wants us <clears throat> this morning, as the readers of this passage, he wants us to associate Jesus with a formidable, uh, um, earth-shattering concept, namely the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And what this means, as we'll see in just a moment, is that the appropriate way to greet Jesus is to bow humbly before him. So let's read the passage. This is, we're reading from Matthew chapter 3, and we'll read the whole, the whole chapter. <clears throat> in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the, the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray before we go any further. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your, <coughs> your word. We thank you for the fact that you've, uh, that you've ordained to use this word of yours to, to touch us, to transform us, to call us, to rebuke us, to change us. And Lord, we do pray that you'd do that precisely this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to hear, receive, and apply everything that you want, to te- you want to teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The appropriate way to greet Jesus is to bow humbly before Him. And the first thing that this passage teaches us here, verses 1 to 6, is that there is a connection between the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of heaven and that this connection should be very, very concerning to us. Now, if we'd been reading this uh, gospel account from the beginning, so two chapters before that, we'd already know by the end of the second chapter from the account of Jesus' birth, we would know that Jesus is the long-awaited, promised Messiah, the Messiah that God had promised to send to deliver his people. And then what happens is between chapters 2 and 3, we leap forward in time, and now we discover this a new character whose name is John the Baptist. And Matthew, the author here, tells us that this John the Baptist is the prophet that was supposed to come right before the Messiah in accordance to a number of prophecies, prophecies in the Old Testament. And so here we, ha- here we have uh, John the Baptist preaching in the desert, and what he's doing is precisely that. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He's he's preparing the way for Jesus to appear publicly and to formally start and begin his, his earthly public ministry. And apparently, according to the the passage in verse 5, it says that a lot of people were going to, to see John the Baptist. A lot of people were going to see him. He was very popular. But the thing that Matthew really emphasizes right away from the beginning, as soon as he introduces this John the Baptist, what he emphasizes is the substance of his teaching, the substance of his message, which is summarized in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if we had been reading this gospel from, from the beginning... After we, we, we would have read chapter 2, we'd be expecting uh, Matthew to continue to tell us the story of Jesus' life and ministry. Instead, Matthew decides first, before he goes on to tell us about what Jesus taught and did, first he wants to make that connection between the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And this is supposed to come as a shock to the reader, because that expression, the kingdom of heaven, points directly to the entire hope of the Old Testament, which is the coming on earth of the reign of God, a reign that is supreme, everlasting, righteous, benevolent, victorious over evil, established by the Messiah in favor of his people and to the glory of God. That's what that expression points to. So it comes as a shock 
when you read that with Jesus coming, well, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. It's almost there. It's, 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 on the, it's at, the thre- at, at the door, on the doorstep. It's right here. It's coming. <clears throat> Isn't that a huge announcement? But what's even more interesting is the logical application that John the Baptist draws from this announcement. Repent. Now, the gospel means good news. So if the gospel really is good news, and if the coming of the kingdom of heaven is the gospel, if it's good news, you wouldn't expect John the Baptist to say repent, but rather to say rejoice. The kingdom of heaven, at long last, is near. But instead he says, repent. There's a connection between the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and this connection should be very concerning to us. Just like it was very concerning to the crowds that came to John the Baptist, confessing their sins and receiving baptism here as a demonstration of their trust in God's promises. What is happening is that the people hearing that the kingdom of heaven is near realize that they are in fact unworthy of the coming of God's kingdom. They realize that they are not ready for the kingdom uh, 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 to come and they are not ready because of their sins. And consequently they run to John the Baptist to repent of their sins, to confess their sins and to be baptized in, in the Jordan which is likely a way to to symbolically cross the Jordan a second time as if they were entering the promised land a second time for a new start uh, with God. Now if the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of heaven are indeed connected, this should be very, very concerning to us too. Because we too are not ready for this coming because of the state of our hearts and of our lives. I have this nightmare sometimes, and I'm almost certain that some of you have also had some version of that same nightmare. A nightmare where I'm late for school or I'm late for church, and I leave my house in a great hurry, unprepared, not ready, and I find myself in front of people, just like this morning, having to deliver some lecture or having to preach some sermon, and all of a sudden I realize that I've forgotten to put my pants on. And when you realize this, you're overcome with panic in your dream, you know, and you start desperately looking for a solution. Now, how can I get out of this situation? But you don't find any solution. So what happens, generally speaking, is you just wake up shaking and covered with sweat and really happy that it was just a bad dream. Now, in real life, you sometimes have to face similar situations. I remember the day we were moving out of an apartment we were renting as a family and we were, we'd lived there for a few years and we were supposed to meet the owners that day uh, to give them back their keys. And what happens in France is the day that you give back the keys to the place you're renting, you also do a sort of inventory of the state of the apartment. And if you've damaged anything, then they'll keep money from your deposit, you see? Well, that day, with only a few hours left before the owners arrived, not only had we not finished cleaning the apartment, but we hadn't even finished moving our st- stuff out of the apartment. And I remember the panic increasing with every passing minute because, you see, the owners were at hand. The owners were near, and I was not ready. And so if the kingdom of heaven is near, 
If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that too should produce a sort of panicky feeling in us. Jesus the Messiah has come to establish God's reign on earth. Wonderful, wonderful. Oh, wait. Oh, our life isn't in a state to welcome the kingdom of God or to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And you see, that's a very important point that Matthew wants to make right here before he starts telling us about the specifics of Jesus' teaching and ministry. But don't we have a tendency to underestimate this point? You know, in our Christian circles, we uh, sometimes get the, the impression that Jesus is first and foremost just a wonderful, easy-going buddy who never blames you for anything, who's always there to support you and to do good to you and to help you fulfill your potential. Now, of course, there's some truth to that, right? But according to this passage, at least, the appropriate way to greet Jesus is rather to bow humbly before him because you see there's this connection between the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of heaven and that connection should be very, very concerning to us. You see, the coming of the kingdom calls for repentance. The coming of the kingdom calls for repentance and all the more because secondly, the coming of the kingdom also announces judgment. What this passage teaches in the following verses, verses 7 to 12 now, is that Jesus intends to expel from his kingdom all sin, all sin. And in particular, hypocritical religiosity, which produces a false sense of security. And consequently, we must be very attentive to the state of our hearts. So what happens in the passage is that Pharisees and Sadducees, which represent two different branches of Judaism Judaism at the time, they come to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. But John the Baptist, what he does is he exposes their hypocrisy. He denounces their hypocrisy. He does so publicly, it seems. And then he goes on to explain to his audience that part of Jesus' mission as the Messiah, as the one who has come to establish the kingdom of heaven... Part of his mission will be to clear up and to clean up his kingdom. Now these few verses are full of metaphors. You may have noticed when we, when we read the passage. And we're not, going to go into, we're not going to look at those metaphors in detail. The main idea here is, uh, is that we, we should understand quite clearly from what uh, John the Baptist is saying here. That Jesus intends to exercise judgment. And that in light of this judgment that Jesus as the Messiah is going to exercise, the hypocrites are particularly in danger. And the hypocrites here are represented by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. According to this passage, it seems, hypocrisy consists in making all the right motions, saying all the right words, but with the wrong heart. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are hypocrites because they come to be baptized while, it seems, refusing inwardly the meaning of their baptism. Baptism, you see, obligates them to faith and therefore to repentance because they're sinners. But inwardly and deliberately, they reject this obligation. They've come to make the right motion, say the right words, but inwardly, something's wrong. They feign piety. But John the Baptist denounces their hypocrisy 
And he says that he's doing that, verse 8, because they're not producing the fruit, the fruits of repentance. What this teaches us is that true repentance is so radical that it is impossible to imitate or to feign or to fake. It produces fruit that is unique. True repentance produces fruit that is unique. And in the end, if you try to imitate those inimitable fruits, God's judgment will reveal your hypocrisy. Now to illustrate, imagine a drug trafficker who gets off a plane coming from Colombia with his stomach full of little packets of heroin, which he swallowed in order to smuggle them into the country, okay? And he gets to customs, and the customs official asks him, Hello, sir, are you carrying drugs? No. Do you take drugs? No. Do you approve of people who take drugs? No, of course not. Have you ever been asked to smuggle drugs into the country? No. Before traveling to our country, did you swallow small packets of heroin in order to hide them in your stomach? No. Well, that's fantastic, sir. Congratulations. Now, would you please undress and we're going to do an x-ray. You see, the drug trafficker in this story is a perfect hypocrite. That ex- uh, pardon me, he makes the right motions. See, he has the right answers. He says the right things. But what's inside him betrays him. And that x-ray in, the, in this illustration is a picture of the judgment of God who test drills hearts and sees inside of us. We can't hide anything from him. Now, imagine another situation. Imagine that you're participating in a piety contest. A piety contest. You get up on the stage in front of everybody and people are going to press on a red or a green button depending on whether or not they think you belong to the kingdom of Jesus. Okay? I think that most of us would do all right. Don't you? I mean, most of us here have a fairly good reputation. Our lives aren't notoriously bad or scandalous. Most of us are able to quote a few Bible verses, the most important Bible verses probably. We go to church, we go to Sunday school, we go to the prayer meeting. So we wouldn't do too bad, right? Now imagine that right before the vote, a giant screen comes up behind you and that someone starts broadcasting on that giant screen all of your secret thoughts and hidden motives. What would be the verdict then? And again, this is a picture of the judgment that uh, Jesus intends to exercise. He's going to reveal hypocrisy. He's going to judge the hypocrites, namely all those who make the right motions, who say the right words, but with the wrong heart. What's inside betrays them. All those who maintain a false sense of security on the basis of their religious affiliation or on the basis of their religious practices, which in the end simply means on the basis of their own merits, of their own performance. Hypocrites are particularly in danger, it seems, according to this passage, because they they often have one foot in the kingdom. But in the end, they will be cut off from the kingdom. If they don't repent and produce the fruits of genuine repentance. So that's why I was saying we need, you and I need to be very attentive to the state of our hearts. Very attentive to anything that could feed that false sense of security in us. And end up producing that kind of hypocrisy we see in the Pharisees and in the Sadducees.
But instead of that, instead of that, what would be the real fruit of real repentance? First and foremost, it would be, and it is, a broken heart. A broken heart. Just like Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are broken inside, who are contrite before God as they realize their sin, as they realize that they are, in fact, unworthy of God's kingdom. The appropriate way to greet Jesus is to bow humbly before him because he intends to expel from his kingdom all sin and especially hypocritical religiosity which produces a false sense of security. See, the coming of the kingdom calls for repentance. The coming of the kingdom announces judgment. But thirdly and lastly, and this is where my sermon gets a bit more joyful, thirdly and lastly, the coming of the kingdom brings the mediator. What the passage teaches teaches us here, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, is that Jesus is the help we need because he is the ideal intermediary between us and God. So when you get to verse 12 in this passage, you're supposed to be very worried, right? Very concerned, very worried. The Messiah is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus the Messiah intends to exercise judgment. And suddenly there comes Jesus who appears in the story, verse 13. There he comes. And he asks to be baptized. Now that's very intriguing. That's very strange for someone who was supposed to come to judge his people, right? This move on Jesus' part contrasts very strongly with with what has just been said about him. And John the Baptist is very aware of that. Verse 14. And he he said, "I, I don't understand. I'm the one to be baptized by you. And you come to be baptized by me. It just doesn't make sense. It's almost a contradiction with everything that he's been teaching and preaching. As that prophet who was supposed to, to, to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. But in reality, Jesus knows very well what he's doing. And what's happening here is extremely significant. In fact, what happens here, verse 13 to 17, actually functions as the answer to the question that was raised in the previous verses through the preaching of John the Baptist. And that question was, well, how then can we get into the kingdom? Jesus says, verse 15, that through his baptism, he intends to fulfill all righteousness. What that means is that Jesus intends to conform himself to the obedience that God demands from his people. So Jesus identifies himself with the people of God and he obeys God as if he were the obedient people of God, even to the point of performing the rites of the covenant, which happened previously with his circumcision, for example. (coughs) And just as a side note, because we had a a baptism just uh, moments ago, there's evidence here that baptism is not primarily the sign of a sinner's repentance. 
Because how could Jesus ever be baptized if baptism was the sign of a sinner's repentance? But rather, baptism is the sign of God's promise to his people or God's faithfulness to his promises to his people. So what's happening here is that Jesus, through his baptism, is identifying with his people. But it's also, as you see right after that, it's also an occasion where Jesus is authenticated as the Son of God through that exceptional manifestation of the Trinity. And so the conclusion you're supposed to draw when you reach the end of this chapter and you've just seen Jesus as both identifying with his people, being fully of his people, of the earth, and then at the same time Jesus being authenticated by God as his son come from heaven. What you're supposed to conclude at the end of, of this chapter is that Jesus really is the ideal person. He's in the ideal position to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth since he is both fully man and at the same time fully a God. He is both fully of the earth and fully of heaven. You might have noticed the parallel between verse 2 where it says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's the introduction to the passage of the chapter. And then verse 17, the conclusion of the chapter. A voice came from heaven and said, the kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand. And now you have this voice from heaven authenticating Jesus as the one who was sent from heaven. And so this account of the baptism of Jesus confirms, therefore, the double nature of Jesus, who is both man and God, both of his people and from heaven. Why does this make Jesus the ideal intermediary or mediator between us and God? Well, let me illustrate. Imagine that you would want to make a trip to France. You'd like to visit France. Problem is, you don't know France. You don't speak the language. You don't know the geography of France. You're somewhat scared of the, of the local customs. Uh, you know next to nothing about the culture. And so France would not be a place where you would naturally fit in. What would you need in order to be able to go there without worry? You would need my wife, Suzanne. Why would you need my wife, Suzanne? Well, because Suzanne has a double nature. She is fully American and fully French. She's 100% both. She has dual citizenship. And because of that, she is the ideal intermediary between you and France. She can fully understand you as an American, and she can fully understand France. She can show you the way, she can explain the customs, she can interpret culture, and she can do it the other way around, too. She can present France to you, and she can present you to France. <coughs> Suzanne is the one who can really make you fit, fit in there in France. And with Jesus, of course, <coughs> it's infinitely better. He is fully man and fully God. And so he is the ideal person to make us fit into the kingdom of heaven where he's come from. If it were just for us, if it were just for our merits and our abilities, we could not belong to that kingdom. And that is precisely the point of Jesus, uh, John the Baptist's preaching in the beginning of the chapter. What we need is someone to come from there 
And at the same time, someone who would fully identify with us, who would understand us. And that's what Jesus has done. He's taken on our condition as human beings. <clears throat> and that's something that began with his conception in, in uh, Mary's womb, continued with his birth, with his circumcision, continues with his baptism, continued with his temptation, which comes in the next chapter, chapter 4. And it culminated in his suffering and his death on the cross. There on the cross, Jesus identified so much with us, his people, that he took our place under God's curse and punishment, even though he was perfectly innocent. But he voluntarily paid the price of our sins so that we could be delivered, so that we would be delivered from them. And then on the third day, he rose again triumphantly from the dead. And then later on, he ascended into heaven where he'd come from. And, and there he sat down on his throne to reign over everything. You see, the kingdom of heaven did come. It was established. And now we can be part of that kingdom through faith in Jesus. If it were just for us and our merits and our abilities, we would not belong there. But you see, Jesus is the help we need. He, and He alone, is the help we need because He is the ideal intermediary between us and God. He can present God to us and present us to God. <coughs> so, to conclude... The whole message of this passage, you see, is that the appropriate way to greet Jesus is to bow humbly before Him. As we've seen, first there's a connection between the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and that connection should be very concerning to us. <clears throat> Why? Because, secondly, Jesus, Jesus intends to expel from His kingdom all sin, and especially hypocritical religiosity which produces a false sense of security and consequently we must be very attentive to the state of our hearts. Our hearts should be broken as we realize that we are unworthy of the kingdom of Jesus. But thankfully and thirdly, Jesus is the help we need because he's the ideal intermediary between us and God. So in life you meet all kinds of different people, don't you? But you don't greet them all in the same way. You don't relate to them all in the same way. It's what people mean to us that determines the way we act with them. The way we greet them. And what Matthew the author wanted us to understand through this chapter, I think, is he wanted us to associate Jesus with this formidable, earth-shattering concept, namely the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And if that is what Jesus means to you, then the only way you will want to greet him or act with him, is to bow humbly before him. Let's pray.